0: have your Bibles with you. I want you to open up to Ephesians chapter 6. We're getting back into the epistle of Ephesians after a a couple of different uh, series that we've done on marriage launching from Ephesians 5, but it's taken us a while to kind of get back here to chapter 6. And so we're excited about talking about children. And so I've entitled this sermon of raising kids without raising Cain. Now, I can't take that credit for that title. I think it was Martha Peace who published that book back in 2003, and I'm ashamed to say I haven't even read the book, but I stole her title, all right? And we're going to kind of use that a little bit as we kind of set the groundwork for uh, what it is that God has called us to do as uh, as godly parents and even as kids. And so I want to just say at the outset of this sermon, this message is for children but this message is also for parents. And so here today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 3. And then we're going to spend a couple of weeks specifically on verse 4. Though they'll, it'll kind of all overlap. And so I've got to ask you to forgive me already. This is a little bit of a dense message that I'm going to kind of have to overview parts of it. But we'll come back and unpack some of those themes as we continue our uh, series on parenting. I hope to do this series in about three or four parts. It depends on how well you listen, all right? So here we are, Ephesians chapter 6. I'll read 1 through 4, though today we'll only look at 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Father, we bow our heads before you. As we've just heard this familiar passage read, most of us could probably quote it by memory. And we desire, God, for this not to be so familiar to us that it loses its punch. And so I pray that on this day you would allow every child and every man and every woman to listen intently to what your word has to say so that we could all live long and be blessed as we desire to honor you by honoring our father and mother. Help us to Learn what you want us to learn so that we can live how you want us to live, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, about 12 years ago, when I got engaged to my beautiful wife, we sat down for some premarital counseling with Pastor Rick Holland, who many of you know, and he told us that the most sanctifying thing that would ever happen to us would be marriage, getting married. And I didn't believe him at the time because I was marrying a perfect person. And then I realized that I was the one who was further from perfect than she was, as we've been through a couple of challenges here and there, as all marriages do. And the second thing Rick Holland told us that would be most sanctifying in our life would be having kids. I didn't believe him either until we had kids. And then I realized that they followed in their mom's footsteps. I'm no, just kidding. I realized that all of us as children, right, we sin and fall short of the glory of God. And as joyful and as blessed as we feel to be able to be parents, it is a great challenge. And we need much help. And the scriptures are sufficient for all we need for life and for godliness. And it is amazing to me to see how many books are written on marriage, how many books are written on parenting that give lots of opinions and give lots of great food for thought, but sometimes err from the purity and simplicity of scripture. My desire is that in this passage that we not become legalistic, At the same time, we not be to offer too much liberty and do nothing at all. But I've been challenged with the task of trying to give us biblical principles of both being an obedient child and also being a godly parent. And so we certainly need his help. And I thought the best place to start would just be a refresher of what Cain did, since that's our title of our series, Raising Kids Without Raising Cain. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 4, and let's just have a quick review of what happened in Cain's life. If you remember, God created the heavens and the earth in six literal 24-hour days in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 2, he gives a little bit more commentary about how Adam named all the animals in the garden, and then God created Eve as well, Adam and Eve, both on the sixth day, and he gives us a few principles that are beautiful in chapter 2. In chapter 3, we read about the fall, how Satan then tempts Adam and Eve and they fall into sin. And then in chapter 4, we read about the second sin, if you will. The first sin was Adam and Eve disobeying God's word. The second sin is about death. It doesn't take long for the human race to go from disobeying God to committing the worst sin imaginable, in some ways, killing another person. And so here's the problem with Cain. Here in your outline, if you're taking notes, you could fill these in if you'd like. First of all, he did... The wrong thing. He did the wrong thing. Now, Adam knew his wife, Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have gotten a man. Or the NASB says, a man child with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Let's just pause right there, and let's just acknowledge that Cain did the wrong thing. I think many times as Christians we look at it, and we're like, well, what did he do wrong? seems like Cain was kind of like, you know, more of a cultivator of of the land, and Abel was more the shepherd of the flock, and so they both just gave the best of what they had. Well, I don't have time to get into it this morning, but I believe there's several cross-references you could look at that show clearly that Cain did from the get-go what was wrong, which means reading between the lines, somewhere, somehow, God had already told Cain and Abel what an appropriate sacrifice would be, and Cain, on his own accord, knowing full well what God had required of him, offered a self-styled sacrifice, one of his own choosing because it was convenient for him. And it was familiar to him. And when he offered this to the Lord, it wasn't like God was being unfair, just picking favorites and say, well, I'll take Abel's, but I don't really like Cain, so you're out. No, it was that Cain sinned in a self-righteous way, offering a sacrifice that he deemed worthy, but that God did not. And so Cain simply did the wrong thing. Secondly, we see this, he responded in the wrong way. The rest of verse five says, so Cain was very angry And his face fell. And so Cain didn't respond well. Let me ask you, who is he angry at? Probably wasn't angry at himself. I guess he could have been. But he seems like here he's taking his anger out towards God. He doesn't like the fact that God confronted him in his sin. And so not only did he do the wrong thing, he's now not responding in the right way. And so the next bullet point says this, he ignored the Lord's warning. Verses 6 and 7, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? The idea of his emotions were were disturbed, that his countenance was upset. So God's asking him, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule Over it. Now understand here, God is not saying somehow you can be forgiven by doing the right thing. God is not somehow entering into this legalistic idea of like, well, if you just do the right thing, it'll be okay. No, the right thing to to do would be to repent, to say, God, forgive me of my pride and my self-righteousness. Would you forgive me? And so the Lord warns him, look, you got, hey, buddy, you're at a crossroads right here. You've got to do the right thing. And if you don't do the right thing, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. You've got to master it. This is the warning that the Lord issues. But in verse 8, we see that Cain ignored God's warning and he committed a grave sin. He committed a grave sin. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. I remember teaching my son how to read, my firstborn son, um, Nate, and in kindergarten, he was reading through, we were reading through Genesis, and he got to verse 8, and he, he couldn't read the verse. He was so impacted by the audacity of this one brother to kill his younger brother. I just saw in my own son, he's like, Dad, how, how could that happen? You mean he killed his brother? And I kind of relived that verse for the first time again through the eyes of my son, just to think, you know, Nate's reading through, and it's like, oh, creation was wonderful, and God created Eve, and she was wonderful, she's the mate to Adam, and everything's going so well. And all of a sudden, it's like, you know, obviously the fall in Genesis 3, but then it's like, and then Cain killed Abel. And it's just a reminder to us that we all are kind of like, Cain in the sense of you follow this outline here we do the wrong thing we respond in the wrong way we ignore the warning of God we've committed some grave sin and then in verse 9 and 10 he lied about what he had done then the Lord said to Cain where is Abel your brother he said I do not know that's a lie he knew where he was he was dead in the field I do not know am I my brother's keeper and the Lord said what have you done The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You know what? The problem of Cain is the problem of every child. We are born in sin. The first sin ever committed was disobeying God or not doing what was right. The second sin ever committed was the sin of death or killing someone for doing what is right. Cain's sin is the first recorded sin in the Bible Of a human being who was born. You understand Adam and Eve were not born. They were created. So this is the first identification of someone who was born. Like you and like me. With a sinful nature. Who did what he did. And we're just reminded here. That we all have the propensity to sin just like Cain. Our tendency is to read this and be like. Well I'm kind of like identifying with Abel. The good guy. You know I would have obeyed God. Gave God what he wanted. I mean I don't want to die. But I'm kind of like Abel. And Cain is the bad guy. Well, I hope what you're realizing this morning is we're a little bit more like Cain than we would like to think. We have all followed in the footsteps of Cain with our own sin, doing the wrong thing, responding the wrong way, ignoring the Lord's warning, committing grave sin, and then trying to cover it up, lying about what we've done. The reality is that there is deep sin in every human heart. And believe it or not, many years ago, the Minnesota Crime Commission issued a report on the depravity of the human soul, which is very unusual for a secular organization to even acknowledge. Here's how part of the report read, quote, Every baby starts like a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attentions, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch, or whatever. Deny him These, and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous if he were not so helpless. (laughs) He's dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, but all children are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign, to their impulsive actions to satisfy each want, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. They got it right, didn't they? Isn't that the truth of the human heart? We're not born good, we're born bad. We're not born alive, we're born dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We're talking about what theologians describe as total depravity. Well, this morning I want us to learn how we can raise kids without... Raising Cain. I want us to understand this morning that we want to see how the gospel crushes the depravity of the human heart. This morning, we want to take a look at this passage so that we can have the knowledge of what God expects of children and of parents so that we could receive the grace to live it out. And so, what we'll do this morning is look at four headings of verses one through three, starting off there in your outline. Number one, the command. What's the command? Children. Obey your parents, and so there in verse one we could ask the question, and this is your next blank if you're taking notes. Who, here in verse one, who is being addressed? The answer: children. That's easy, right? Children are being addressed. Ephesians 6:1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Well, the word children is used uh, some other places in Ephesians, and let me just say this before I take you there: the greatest sin that the church could commit today in parenting is believing that this verse is only for toddlers. The greatest sin that you could commit as a teenager this morning is thinking that this verse is not talking about you. The greatest sin that you could commit as a college student this morning is thinking somehow you've graduated from Ephesians 6.1 and it no longer applies. Now I want to show you this day that children really applies to all of us. Even here in the epistle, if you look at chapter 2, verse 3, we read this. Here's three other places where the word child or children is used in Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So let me ask you, are we talking about toddlers? Or are we talking about every human being was born a child of wrath? Look at Ephesians 5. Not only are we referred to as children of wrath in 2-3, but in 5-1, we are referred to as beloved children. So post-salvation, post-conversion, we're then challenged in Ephesians 5-1, the second place where children is in this epistle. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Again, there's no age category. It's understood that if you're saved, you're a child of God. The third place it's used is in verse 8 of chapter 5 where we're referred to as children of light. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So let me ask you, in 2, 3, 5, 1, and 5, 8, is he referring to toddlers or is he referring to any person of any age? From looking at this word, children, used here in Ephesians and in studying many commentaries, I have not found one solid argument to say paul only had in mind toddlers i believe he had in mind anybody who's a child for that's how the word is used in this epistle and certainly we could gather that same concept from how it's used throughout the bible turn with me to a couple of familiar places in psalm psalm 127 verses three through five here we see a couple of my favorite passages in psalm 127 and we'll look at 128 as well where the word children is used again obviously in the hebrew but here we read this psalm 127 3 behold children are a heritage from the lord from the fruit of the womb a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate let me ask you a question are children only considered to be a heritage from the lord when they're born Are they only considered to be a heritage from the Lord when they're toddlers? Are they only considered to be a heritage of the Lord, you know, when we think about baby showers and the announcement and all that kind of stuff? Are they a blessing from the Lord for their whole life? I think sometimes we take 127 and we're like, oh, that's a sweet verse for young parents. But it doesn't apply to older parents. Well, I would say it does. It refers to children are still a heritage from the Lord, whether they're 2 or 20. They're still a heritage from the Lord. They're still the fruit of your womb. You're still blessed if your quiver is full of them. Look at chapter 128. Psalm 128 is the other famous passage, verse 3 and 4. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Well, olive shoots there obviously could have that reference to a younger age. But I think you would still sit around and look at your children. And you don't always see them in age. You just see them as like, you're, you're my child. So whether whether you're 1 or 5 or 15 or 25 when they're sitting around your table, I think you could still read that verse and be like, man, I'm a blessed man. I'm a blessed woman. We have our children here around our table. Thus, I'm emphasizing that we can't think that Ephesians 6.1, just because it uses the word children, only refers to a particular younger age category. So this is what I'm saying. If you live at home and you are under your parents' roof, this verse applies to you. If you're in college and you're still a dependent on your mom and dad, to some degree, this verse still applies to you. It's only that when you are completely out of the house and possibly married, starting your own family unit, that it may not apply to you with such the same specificity as it does as long as you're the the junior member in the relationship. And even then, we're going to be looking here as we get on to honor your father and mother, that that's true of adults as well as grown adults, we still honor our father and mother. In fact, it's used twice addressing adults, and we'll get there in a minute. And so what I'm trying to say is this morning, you better listen up, all right? This is not a Sunday school message for five-year-olds only. If you're in the service and you're five, listen up. If you're in the service and you're 15, listen up. If you're in the service and you're in college, listen up. This message is for you. You say, well, what, what, what is it that we're to do? Well, your next blank says this. They are to obey, right? Children, that's children who are in the home specifically, I think, would be that maybe the, most, uh, the, the healthiest way to think of it, though it's not specified. But what are they to do? They are to obey. And this word obey is synonymous with the word to be subject to. To obey means to follow. It means to do what one is told. It means to carry out one's orders. It's used already in Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of a reverence for Christ. You remember, we're kind of in the phase of Ephesians of walking in the spirit, not being drunk with wine, Ephesians 5.18, but being filled with the spirit. And that's what it looks like in the family. In marriage, in 22 through 33, this is what it looks like with children and parents in 6, 1 through 4. This is what it looks like at work in 6, 5 through 9. This is what it looks like in spiritual warfare in 6, 10 through 20. And so we're kind of in that category of in order to walk in the Spirit, we've got to submit to the authority God's placed over us. And so we've got to submit to, we've got to obey. Same word is also used in 1 Peter 3, 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. It's used again in 1 Peter 3, 5. By submitting to their own husbands. It's used again in 1 Peter 3.6. As Sarah obeyed Abraham. It's used even in the cross. Reference to Ephesians 6. Where you guys know that's Colossians 3. Why don't you turn there. Colossians 3.20 is the code for families. Just like we've been reading here. In 5.22-33. through 6.1-4. And so on. That's all included in just a couple of verses. But look at Colossians 3.20. Children. Same word. Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And so what we need to establish from the get-go here is that children are called to obey their parents. They're called to submit to them. Technically, it could be to listen under. The idea of listening to hear is to obey, and I'm submitting to, I'm under my parents' authority, and I'm supposed to submit to them, by the way, in everything, so many times you'll have a rebellious teenager come into your office and they'll complain about how their mom or dad won't let them do this or that. And they'll say something like, well, I want to stay up later than my parents make me stay up. I'm in high school now. My parents are making me go to bed at 11 o'clock and my, my friends stay up till midnight. Where in the Bible does it say I have to go to bed at 11? So I always say, well, why don't you open your Bible? I'll show you that verse. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 1, and they they typically be like, why? No, no, show me in the Bible. No, that's it. That's the place in the Bible where it says you're to obey your parents in everything, okay? Not just in what you like or what you hear. Well, show me in the Bible where it says I can't go to that movie. Well, Ephesians 6.1, Colossians 3.20, children obey your parents in everything. I was teaching that to one counseling case when I was in Texas, and as soon as I... Told the child, you know, you got to obey your parents and everything. There was some friction in the house. And I'm like, look, you got to obey your mom and dad no matter what. I said, the only exception to that is if your mom and dad are asking you to sin. As soon as I said that, the kid looked at his mom. He's like, <sniffs> and I'm like, oh, what's going on here? And she's like, well, I asked him to lie on his application to school because we just moved from one house to another house. And in order to go to the school we wanted, we needed our former address. And my son asked me about it, and I told him it was okay, fill it out anyway. And I looked at her and I said, you sinner. Yeah. Yeah, I chose not to deal with that one. I was just like, hey, look, I understand, but that's that's probably not appropriate. And certainly just by the fact that we're talking about children obey your parents and you've asked your child to cover for you, that's wrong. You can't do that. And child, I, I would say to you, if your mom and dad ever literally ask you to sin in a, in a white lie kind of way, which that possibly could be categorized, even though there's no such thing as a white lie. You get what I'm saying. But the idea is like, no, you should call them out on it. If your mom and dad look at you and say, look, I want you to do this or do that, you can look at your mom and dad and say, you know what, I respect God more than I respect you. And out of my love for Christ, I cannot do that. Okay? I encourage you to do that. You can step up to them kindly and in a godly way. And if you do that and they slap you across the head, now you call me, right? You give me a call. We're going to show up at your house. And we're going to deal with the situation, all right? But typically, in most families, that's not what's going on, right? Parents have a prerogative to parent and how they believe is best. And some parents are really conservative and some are really loose. But guess what? God has given you your parents for your good. And so whether you have the parent who seems to be loose on areas or too, uh, you know, too tight on other areas, that's the parent you have. And as long as you are under your parent's authority... Which, again, I would say is until you're completely out of the house and no longer a dependent, and until you're married, you need to think about first obeying your mom and dad. Again, with the sticky situations that come up, that's where you guys need to just come in for counseling and let us address and listen to, to the parent and the child and help think through the wisdom of God in and, 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 and moving forward. And I understand it can be difficult during those transitionatory years of how much should a child just obey. But let's just start off where we know we're accurate. As long as you're obeying mom and dad, you're doing the right thing. As soon as you start thinking about disobeying mom and dad, that's where you're going to get into, you know, the burden of proof is on you to show how it's right for you to disobey mom and dad in a situation. And so let's move on to our next little bullet point here, C. Who are they to obey? Well, they're to obey parents. just want to emphasize here, that while fathers is is given in verse 4, moms and dads, parents are given in verse 2, moms and dads in verse 3, right? So the emphasis here isn't just for dads. Sometimes it's like the kid shapes up when daddy gets home because he knows dad's going to bring the belt, right? Some, Some dads are too passive and they're wimps, so they're more scared of mom. But the idea here is in the Bible, you should be scared of both of them, right? You're supposed to submit to your mom and your dad. And where I see this going wrong so often is that Dad is not necessarily home and taking care of stuff. And so the teenage boy begins to rebel against his mom, right? And she's like, well, I don't know what to do. He's bigger than me. He's stronger than me. He won't obey me. I can't just put him over my knee and spank him anymore. So what am I supposed to do? And so what, what we're supposed to do is, is your son hopefully is here today. And hopefully he's, you have him in church where he's hearing the word of God saying, you've got to submit to your mom and dad. Doesn't matter if you're bigger. Doesn't matter if you're stronger. The idea here is in Proverbs 1.8, hear my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. You are to obey your mom and your dad. You don't have the right to obey one, but not obey the other. Proverbs 23.22, listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. And so I would say to you, young man, young woman, you are to obey your mom and your dad. You don't have the right to pick one above the other. And oh, by the way, this is also true of step-parents. Okay? So it, it, many families that are broken and blended have a lot of baggage. And what happens oftentimes is they're like, well, I'm just the stepdad. I don't know if I can do that. Or the child will say, well, that's my stepmom. I'm not going to obey her. I'm like, well, why not? Where in the Bible does it give one set of rules for your biological parents and a different set of rules for your step-parents? A parent is a parent is a parent. And if God's placed them in authority in your life, you must submit to your stepdad, you must submit to and obey your stepmom, no matter what, unless they're asking you to sin. Otherwise, you are called to submit to them. Now, obviously, sometimes there's special challenges with how that looks, and sometimes we work on that in the counseling office. But by and large, the same principles apply in every family, broken or blended, or whatever your situation is, God's word holds true. Wives must submit to their husbands, children submit to their parents, servants submit to their masters, citizens submit to the government. In fact, I say out of that Romans 13 passage, let every person be subject to his governing authorities. Not only does a child need to submit to his mom and dad and to his stepmom and dad, he needs to submit to his teacher. He needs to submit to his coach. He needs to submit to his instructor. She needs to submit to her ballet teacher. They need to submit to anybody who's in any authority over them, which is why we tell our kids, look, if you get in trouble at church or at school, you're getting it at home. So if our teacher at school tells us, hey, we had to bring your child out and set them out for this or that or the other, that's an automatic discipline for you. Automatic. In fact, this happened to us at church just a month or two ago. One of our kids got in a little trouble. The teacher was kind enough to pull me aside and say, I need to talk to you about your child. I said, I'll take care of that. We got home and I ministered the rod. my child because we've told them time and time again if a teacher pulls me aside then that means you disobeyed that teacher and you will be disciplined because I love you too much to allow you to be a spoiled brat at school or at church I love you too much so please if you serve in our church and you have a kid who's not obeying would you just let mom and dad know and if you're a mom and dad would you step up would you step up and take care of it at home in a way that would honor God, if you're a child and you're here this morning, you better treat your Sunday school teacher and your teacher and your coach just like you would your mom and dad. You give them that same authority in your life that you obey them unless they're asking you to sin. I'm about to get upset, so we better keep moving on. All right, let's go to D. How are they to obey? Well, they're to obey in the Lord. They're to obey in the Lord. Now, this is obviously a conundrum. It's like, well, what if they're not saved? He's commanding them to obey him in the Lord, but what do you do with that kid who says, I don't believe in God? Do they have to obey? Do parents have to force their child to obey them if that child starts saying, well, I'm not a Christian, I don't believe, how can you expect me and demand me to believe when I don't believe, or to obey when I don't want to obey because I don't believe in Christ? Well, let me just say, look, you still got to do... What God's called you to do. Nowhere in the verse does it specify only Christians. It does give the idea we want to do it in the Lord. That's the goal we're shooting for, but it doesn't give you somehow like, well, if it's not in the Lord, don't worry about it. No, you still parent your children to obey you. If nothing else, you're establishing the fact that you are the authority and they have to submit to your leadership. And if that's all you're getting across, it's possible that God may use that to bring the gospel into their hearts where they realize that there is an authority over them who who will discipline them if they don't do what that authority says. And then it gets us to the point where sometimes my kids will be like, Dad, I can't obey. And I'm like, you're right. That's why Jesus came. He obeyed his father perfectly, and he died on the cross so that if you repent from your sins and trust in Christ, not only will he forgive you, but he will help you learn to obey in the Lord. This is so important that we help our teachers and our, I mean, our, our parents, we need to help each other understand. It's not just because I said so. I think you could also tie into this. It's because the Lord said so. No, I'm doing as a parent what God's called me to do, and you're to obey me in the Lord. This isn't just mom and dad coming up with this stuff. This is straight out of the scripture. And the reference I gave there on your notes, just I was trying to make the point of it's not just something to check off the list that you do by obeying this command. Somehow you're pleasing to the Lord because you're not. You've got to do it with the right heart and the right motive and the right attitude. And that's what we're getting to here as we move on. So let's move on to our second um, major point here. The reason it is the right thing to do. He gives a bigger reason in verse two and three. But at the end of verse one, I just don't want you to forget. It says, for this is right. So the initial reason to do what you do is because, you know what, it's right. You know what else is right? We could say it this way, and I'll just go through this quickly. It's because of God's righteous character. That word right is used to describe the character of God. It's because of Jesus Christ, the righteous. You do what's right because God has a righteous character. Jesus Christ is the righteous. C, because practicing righteousness reveals righteousness. So if you're doing the right thing, then it may reveal that you've been made righteous by the blood of Christ. D, because we are told to treat others in the right way. And E, because God does whatever is Right? You can look up those cross-references later, but I just want to make sure you understand. Look, we do what we do because it's the right thing to do. That's what God's Word says. If we we want to honor what God says. He has the wisdom to tell us what to do because it's right in pretty much every culture of every time. It is right for children to obey their parents. Oftentimes, I tell children that, look, if you'll just obey your mom and dad, it will remove 95% of the conflict at home. You just You just say, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir, be happy to do that. You just do that. Every time your parents get on to you or ask you to do something instead of, you know, giving them a kickback of like, well, I'm not finished texting my friend yet. Like, come on, give me a break. Just yes, ma'am. Yes, sir, I will obey you. If God would help you do that, it would remove 95% of the conflict in your home like that. Gone. Why? Because you got nothing to argue about. You're just obeying mom and dad, whatever they say, without arguing or complaining. Man, you're going to be a peaceful house. you got a lot of extra time on your hand. You don't have to argue anymore. You don't have to fight. Just, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. I'll do that. And, of course, the idea here is let's clarify this a little bit more by going on to the third heading. The command further clarified, honor your father and mother, verse 2. So it says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. What I want to make sure that you guys are getting at is this. Verse 1 addresses a little bit more of your action But verse 2 addresses a little bit more of your attitude. That's why your next blank there says it's not only about action, it's about attitude. You can't just say, I'll I'll obey them externally without doing it with the right heart. So children, please listen up. If you're cleaning your room because mom and dad said so, and so you're obeying them, but you're angry in your heart, you've obeyed verse 1 in a sense, but not verse 2. Or if you're a teenager and you're upset that mom and dad are having you rake the leaves in the yard or do more chores than you're used to doing and you're obeying them, but you're upset, you're obeying verse one, but not verse two. If you're a college student and your mom and dad say, look, you're going to get a part-time job. I need you home on this weekend. You still have responsibilities around here and you obey them. But on the inside, you're upset and you're angry at them. Then you might be obeying with your actions, but you're sure not obeying with your attitude. God's word couldn't be more clear that he wants us in Mark 12 30 to obey the Lord your God with all your what with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength with all that you are it's not good enough just to obey verse one you also need to obey verse two we need to obey with all our hearts with everything that we have. That's why Proverbs 3.1 says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Proverbs 4.4, 4, He taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. And so just as obeying your parents from the heart honors God and brings joy and peace to your family, it's the way it's supposed to be, also a disobedient attitude and one that shows dishonor to your mom and dad brings grave consequences in fact list let let me give you a list of a couple more proverbs you'll just have to jot these down proverbs 10 1 a wise man makes a glad father but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother proverbs 17 21 the father of a fool has no joy proverbs 19 13 a foolish son is ruin to his father the point I'm trying to make is, look, you can honor or dishonor your mom and dad. And when you dishonor them, you are being a fool. When you have the wrong attitude, you're being foolish. When you have the wrong attitude, you're bringing shame and you're bringing reproach. And this isn't some new concept just for the New Testament. Your next blank there, B, it's not a new commandment, but a reiteration of an old commandment. Obviously here. He's quoting, as he gives us Ephesians 6:2 here. he's quoting from Exodus 2012 and from Deuteronomy 5:16. He's quoting from the Ten Commandments, i.e. the fifth commandment, Honor your father and mother and that's reiterated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And so the idea is this is nothing new. this is an old commandment, and he's being reminded uh, he's reminding us the, the Apostle Paul is that this is a continuation of what God has been teaching all along. And then I would say this, C in your outline, it's not only for children, it's for adults. Remember how we talked about at the beginning of the message, this isn't just for toddlers, it's not just for teenagers, it's not just for college students, it's not just for those who aren't married yet. I would say it's for you as an adult who's married, you say Adam in what context? Well, how about Matthew 15, 1 through 9? where we don't have time to look at it in detail, but basically the Pharisees came to Jesus and they were breaking the commandment of God for the sake of tradition. Matthew 15, 4, for Jesus speaking, for God commanded, honor your father and mother. So he uses this, uh, this commandment, honor your father and mother. It's only given one time in the scripture in the sense of initially Deut- in, uh, in, uh, Exodus 20. Okay? The fifth commandment is given. It's used in the New Testament in three contexts. One of them is the Ephesians 6 context in Colossians 3.20. That's one context. And then it's used in two other contexts in the Gospels by Jesus. And in both of those contexts, he's not talking to children. He's talking to adults. And he still tells them, honor your father and mother here in this place where in Matthew 15, the Pharisees are not honoring their father and mother. And Jesus says in Matthew 15.5 now, But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what would you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. And so he's saying, hey, look, if you're saving some of the money and you're saying that you have and you need to support your elderly parents, but you're saving it and you're giving it to the church or using it for your own needs and not giving it to mom and dad to care for them then you are committing a sin. And Jesus confronts the hypocrites, uh, the Pharisees, and calls them hypocrites because they were acting like they were honoring God, but they weren't honoring God because they weren't honoring their adult, elderly father and mother by caring for them. That's how it's used. So it's not just for children, it's for adults. So we need to honor our mom and dad by caring for them till their death. I mean, my word, your mom and dad changed your poopy diaper, right? They took care of all of your little lessons and your ball games. And they finally get up in their maybe 80s or 90s or whenever their health starts failing them a little bit. And all of a sudden, you're, you're going to just like too bad, so sad? Are you kidding me? God has called you first that you would feel the responsibility as a child to provide for your elderly mom and dad. And I can just say this. I have been blown away at the generosity and care. In the church of Jesus Christ that I've seen so many of you and people at the former church where I serve do a great job doing that. I mean, honestly, I've I've known some some folks who've had their elderly parents live with them, care for them. And have to uh, even help them with, you know, with things around the house that you would think, man, I, I hope I don't have to do that for my mother-in-law one day, you know, in my sinfulness, right? But the idea of seeing that has been a great example of a good way to do this. And if you're avoiding that and neglecting that, then you are sinning against God. So it's not just for children. It's for adults as well. Let me move on to D. The last thing I want to say right here is this. It's not the only commandment with a promise, it's not the only commandment with a promise. And so what I'm saying is this. A lot of times we'll read that Ephesians 6, 2. It's the first commandment with a promise. And sometimes we don't do our homework. And uh, actually, there's another commandment. It could be argued that has a promise. And it's actually the second commandment. The second commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 says, You shall not make for yourself a, a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or, under the, or that is in the water under the earth. So we're talking about the second commandment, thou shalt not make any graven image. With that commandment, in Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6, the next two verses, offers a possible promise. Here's what it says, Exodus 25, you shall not bow down to them, still talking about the graven image, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, and here's the potential promise, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so some people would say, well, second commandment has a promise. So Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. These would be liberals, obviously, who are like, well, it's not the first commandment with a promise. The second commandment had a promise. Well, how how do we answer that? If you ever get in that debate, right? Well, you you might be like, Adam, I don't care. But you should care, right? Because you've got to be careful with the word of God. So here's a couple of ways to think about that. Some would say that the first of the second table of the law is what Paul's referring to. So in other words, the first, uh, some would say the first four commandments have to do between man and God. And what Paul's referring to is the first of the second table, five through 10. And so when he's saying this is the first commandment with a promise, he means of that second table. I think that's a bad explanation because nowhere in the Bible does it clearly signify two tables. And even in Uh, in Jewish studies, they would divide it sometimes differently. Some would divide it between the fifth and sixth, not between the fourth and fifth. Another way people try to answer that is this. They'll say, well, this is the first uh, commandment with a promise in priority. So for children, they need to really heed this because the way they know God is first by knowing the authority of their parents. And so maybe he's talking about, for children, this is the most important thing for them. Well, be careful because Jesus already made it clear what the greatest commandment was. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then the second is like it: love your neighbors yourself. He didn't clarify that somehow the priority is different for adults as it is children. So I don't think that's the best way to think about it. So ask me what's the best way to think about it. All right, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. All right. This this is the way I think about it. I, I think that the promise given, the promise given in the Exodus uh, passage about the second commandment, is not a promise. I think it's more of a general truism that if you disobey me you'll be cursed if you obey me you'll be uh, if you obey me you'll be blessed and that concept applies to all the commandments and we shouldn't see it as specifically tied to the second commandment but with this particular fifth commandment honor your father and mother it is specifically tied to a promise and so I think Paul said exactly what he meant this is the first commandment that has a legitimate specific promise about obedience And the promise is this, and it leads us into our fourth point, what the real motivation is for obeying. It leads to well-being and long life, right? The first commandment with a promise, what is it? That purpose clause or resulting in, it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And so here's what we're getting to. The main motivation for children, whether you're young or old, to obey your mom and dad is don't you want to have a good life so that it will go well with you? And, oh, by the way, you'll have a long life. I mean, not only do you get quantity, you get quality. Or the other way around, you get quality, you get a good life, and quantity. You live for a long time. I mean, that's a good deal, right? That ought to be a great motivation to obey our parents. Now, it's interesting because your next blank says this. Theologically speaking, there is a transfer of application from the pre-conquest thinking to a new covenant thinking. Like, Adam, I don't like you anymore, man. You're getting too theological. Well, think about it this way. The Ten Commandments were given before Israel entered into the promised land. So is it possible that part of that initial promise was like, hey, if you obey your mom and dad, you're going to get to the land. You'll get to, i.e., the promised land. If that's what Moses meant when he gave the Ten Commandments, how are we to understand it today? To which I would say that's why some versions translate it that you will live long in the earth. I believe that's how the NASB translates it. The ESV translates it still as land. But the question is, is he talking about a specific promised land or is he talking about the earth in general? And so I would take the view that he's just talking about the earth in general. Look, look, you'll live long on the earth as long as you're here on the the land, i.e. the earth. You're going to live a long time because there's a transfer potentially of application from those who heard it initially before the conquest and those who hear it after the conquest. Next next blank is this. Generally speaking, there is a connection between obedience and honor, which brings about self-discipline leading to longevity and blessing. What am I trying to say there? Generally speaking, when you obey mom and dad, you're going to learn to have wisdom and to have your own self-discipline so that in life you don't take risks and break the law and offend others that could lead to your death. So the idea is that if you learn as a child to obey mom and dad, one of the ways that you'll likely live a long time is you're going to make wise decisions. You're not going to steal from somebody else and then come back and hit you over the head with a club. You're not going to get into big trouble with that gang and get shot. Because you've learned to obey mom and dad in the Lord, you learn to make wise decisions. Now, You'll be blessed because, generally speaking, that's true. Now, we all could tell a story of a child who did obey their mom and dad and who died at a young age. So, this is not an absolute promise, it's a general truism that there tends to be a connection generally between those who honor mom and dad and those who will live a long life and experience. Great blessing. In fact, Psalm 119 talks about blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. This is certainly one of his laws. James 1 22, as you know, is to be doers of the word, not hearers only, so that you will be blessed in all you're doing. So if you want to be blessed in this life, it starts with obeying mom or dad. Are you getting me? Young person, teenager, college student, if you want to be blessed in this life, it starts with obeying and honoring. Mom and dad. Mom and dad, if you want to continue to receive blessing and long life, you need to honor your mom and dad by making sure they're taken care of to the grave. And this is a way that we can all realize that this passage is speaking to all of us, not just to the little toddlers at home. Let's, let's look at a couple of take-home applications, and we'll be done. Number one, do you tend to place more of an emphasis on actions or attitudes? My biggest fear is that my kids will obey me externally because they know they're going to get it if they don't. But if they're obeying me externally, they might be doing it with a wrong attitude, which sometimes I can see and sometimes I can't. And so we've got to be careful that we're making sure that we're constantly shepherding our child's heart of, hey, why did you do what you did? What were you thinking when you did what you did? How does God's word say that we should think about what you did when you did what you did? Now, the glory of all that is like, oh, that sounds good. I want to read Shepherding a Child's Heart and do that. The problem is it's hard because they don't want their heart to be shepherded. So as you're trying to get into the whys, they just want to talk about the what's. And so that's where I found it to be extremely challenging. I'm like, all right, I'm going to shepherd their heart. We're going to have a good conversation. I'm going to point out to my children idols of the heart, and they're going to praise me for it. Well, guess what? They don't so often right but we're still called to do it because parenting's not for wimps but you keep coming back to God's word and the gospel and place as much emphasis on attitude as you place on action number 2 do you see the connection between obeying or honoring your parents and obeying and honoring God listen to me you can't for a second say i love Christ i love the gospel i'm so thankful what Jesus did And then I get to know you a little better, and you're a teenager, and you're like, yeah, I'm grounded. You see, the the difference would be somebody would be like, well, I love Jesus. I just don't like my mom or dad. They make me so mad. No, how you obey your mom and dad shows how you obey God. If you disobey mom and dad, you're disobeying God. If you're not honoring mom and dad, you're not honoring God. If you think you have a great relationship with God, and you have a sorry relationship with your parents, then you have a sorry relationship with God, right? You've got to work on first honoring and obeying mom and dad so that you're truly honoring and obeying God because God has put mom and dad in your life to make you more like Jesus. He's not put them in your life to hurt you and to beat you up, right? He's put them in your life to make you more like Christ, even if they're not saved, so that you could see your great need for Christ. Third, do you trust in God's design for the family or are you trying to do it on your own? So many times, children move quickly around their parents to get their friends' thoughts and even their youth pastor and pastor's thoughts before they really consider what mom and dad are saying and what that looks like in their life. And I just want to encourage you today, trust the design of God. I'm not saying don't get your youth pastor or your pastor's involvement in shepherding a difficult conversation. What I am saying is just trust God's design is perfect. He's given you that mom and dad, that mom and dad love you. Love them, obey them in your action and in your attitude because you can rest assured, hopefully they're doing their very best to raise their kids without raising Cain. And you don't want to end up like Cain. You want to rather end up as a beautiful child of God, obedient, following in the path of God's word through the gospel for his glory. And so there's some of these we're going to unpack more as we move on. But that's today's installment, and let's close in prayer and ask for God's grace to do it. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to look at a familiar passage and to see some things maybe some of us haven't thought about in a while. And I just pray, God, that you would impact through your spirit and through the living word of God this very passage of Ephesians 6, 1 through 3 to grab our attention today as children to make sure we're obeying not only externally but with our hearts. And I pray for that toddler today who's not getting it, that you would bless them with divine grace. And I pray for that teenager today who needed to be awakened about how this passage is for them, that you would grant them humility. And I pray for that college student today who's forgot about this passage altogether, that you would remind them it still applies. And I pray for us as maybe full-blown adults or, or parents even, that we would see how this applies in taking care of our parents For what we want to do, God, is allow all the relationships within a family, whether it's marriage or parenting or respecting and honoring our parents, to display the gospel, to display how you find satisfaction in us as we find satisfaction in you, and that ultimately you're satisfied in your own glory. And yet we want to live with these practical principles in place so that we could display your glory and that all would see there's a difference in how we parent and a difference in how we handle things because there's a difference in us. We've been saved by the gospel, and we've been called to live out a life of worship to the Lord Jesus Christ and implementing these things in our homes. So God, would you help us here at Placerita to be faithful parents? Would you help us to be faithful children because we're ultimately, through Christ, children of God, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.